Hi, friends. Welcome to the Brave Enough Podcast. Grab some coffee, sit back, or enjoy your drive, and let's get authentic, real, and into the good stuff. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut, and I'm so excited to hang out with you today, where we're going to talk about life and work and all the messy stuff in between. So get ready. In episode 49, Sasha interviews Dr. Susie Pitt. Sasha and Susie talk about how small, courageous steps can lead to impactful changes. Now here's your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Brave Enough Show. I have an amazing guest today. We're going to have such a good chat and bring you inspiration. Who doesn't need inspiration? I know I do. And there was a time in my life where I needed more than inspiration to change things that were I was really struggling with. And I made something called the Brave Enough Retreat so that people like you who may be listening and feeling like they need something in their life to change, need a kickstart. And not just a kickstart, you need a plan of attack. I want to invite you, if you are a woman, to join me in January 2020 for the Brave Enough Retreat. I'm taking a very small group of women to Captiva, Florida, and I've rented an amazing space for us to relax and to reset, but also to do a deep dive into things in our life that needs to change. And so I really want to encourage you if you're interested in a curriculum that's going to take you and kind of unearth some things that maybe you can easily ignore in your life, but yet they're bringing you down. I really want to encourage you to go to becomebraveenough.com and check out the Brave Enough retreat. I would love to hang out with you for a few days in a beautiful place and take you through some amazing curriculum and help you get back to your authentic self, because that's really what this entire podcast is about. That's what the work that I do and why I do the Brave Enough work is to help women specifically uh, come back to their authentic lives and their authentic self and find you know, the courage to live brave enough each day. So without further ado, I want to now take you to our podcast today with Dr. Susan Pitt. Welcome to the Brave Enough Show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you're out there listening, I think you're going to enjoy today's episode because I have an amazing woman on my show today who has become a dear friend. She is someone who I followed on social media for quite some time. And there was just something about her that I was drawn to. And I thought, I know that if I ever meet this person, like she's, she, she and I will be friends. <laughs> we will be friends in real life if I ever just meet her. Um, her name is Dr. Susie Pitt, and she is an endocrine surger, er, surgeon excuse me, and researcher at the University of Wisconsin. And she, besides being an amazing um, physician, very skilled at what she does, uh, she also has a master's degree in population health science, and she is an NIH-funded researcher, and she does health services research. And she has grants and funding to really dive deep into some difficult issues in medicine and in healthcare publicly. And in her spare time, she holds national leadership positions in the Association of Academic Surgery and the Association of Women Surgeons. She has been awarded the American Medical Women's Association Exceptional Mentor Award for her work mentoring undergraduate students. And she also started something that you probably, if you are on social media at all, and you are involved in medicine, or even if you're not, you've probably seen 
a picture or an artist's rendering of a picture that she snapped in 2017 that went viral and has led to a lot of awareness and changes in inequity in surgery. And so welcome to the show, Susie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today and talk with you. I know this is really fun. So you and I kind of followed each other um, on social media and then we were able to meet last year at a women's retreat held by Dr. Julie Silver and we just kind of connected at the retreat and uh, I I have to say that you didn't disappoint me. (laughs) You are better in person than you are online. So um, we had met before that, uh, maybe, I think we had met before that at one conference, but really we got to know each other at the retreat a little bit, which was really fun. And I just really wanted you to come on the show today because I think that when people uh, are, you know, think of a woman surgeon, they have an idea in their mind that they form, even in the, the public and certainly in medicine, we kind of form ideas about each other. And I knew that you had initiated the New York cover challenge, the OR cover challenge, um, which I really want you to describe. But you are like very different than than I think some people would think of a of a surgeon. You um, are very, you, you love to be outside. You're very artistic. You have a lot of other self-interests, which I think makes you a very well-balanced person to be leading in this space. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I actually, I grew up the daughter of a surgeon and I'm actually very frequently will tell people I probably would not have become a surgeon if my dad had not been um, a surgeon. So I grew up in Baltimore and he was a big NIH-funded researcher. He was at Hopkins. I have an older brother and an older sister, neither of whom went into medicine directly, though my sister has an MBA and a Master's of Health Administration and works for the CEO at the uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh. Um, and my brother went totally opposite direction and is a financial advisor. Um, but that really, I think, growing up had an impression on me. But my mom is someone who's always been an art museum um, docent and she's very into sort of arts and humanities and that side and so I think I'm someone who probably truly is sort of um, that's where I uh, naturally um, you know am drawn towards and then you know I sort of always just had this side this other side and then it was like well I want to be like my dad and so you know I just sort of always thought that I'd go into medicine I actually remember having a total crisis when I was a junior in college because I started thinking to myself oh I never really thought of doing anything else I just really want to do <laughs> um and I was actually a psychology major in undergrad because I sort of knew if I was going to study science on the time later that I kind of wanted to do something more within the social sciences um and I didn't quite want to go to you know do sociology or something like that um but it's really interesting because now like my research is very much um, around decision psychology, and so it draws in some behavioral economics, but also um, the psychology side of decision making. Um, we look at over treatment and sort of what are the how do the decisions happen and what is driving over treatment of specifically for me of our lowest thyroid cancer. Um, but I'm interested in sort of over treatment in general because I mean, how many times do we get a CT scan just in case or you know, we do things based on these probabilities that we know are less than one in a hundred chance, but yet we order the test anyway or do something anyway. Um, and it, you know, there's a lot of healthcare waste um, 
we estimate that it's about $2.7 billion a year is um, wasted in overtreatment and unnecessary care. How do you um, think that, I mean, really so how do you think, Susie, that's really interesting, $2.7 billion in medical, in waste from ordering tests. And how do you think that, that physician psychology, like the psychology of the physician mindset plays into that? Do you think that we are just so afraid of missing something or so afraid of making a mistake or so afraid of being the person that didn't think of this zebra um, diagnosis that we, that drives that? Or what do you think drives that? I mean, I think it's certainly multifactorial. We've done some surveys looking at things that, you know, sometimes the low risk or thing is operating and the high risk thing is not operating. Um, and sort of asked um, both um, surgeons and endocrinologists questions around that. And, you know, surgeons, not surprisingly, were more concerned about malpractice um, and issues related to that because it's more common in our, you know, field. So I do think that there, some of it is driven by, you know, our reimbursement models also because I think that, you know, if you're going to get paid to fix somebody's back or something like that and they're not actually going to do much better, you know, or you're not sure and there's maybe a small chance I'll do better than you're driven to, there's this incentive because you're getting, you know, paid for it. Um, and so I think that there are uh, a lot of different things within the way our healthcare structure is set up um, that drives it. You know, certainly I think some of it's like just personal tolerance of risk or uncertainty. You know, some people are like, no problem, I'll jump out of a plane. And <laughs> other people are like, I can't even get on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so I think, you know, there's the spectrum within physicians and within healthcare too. But I, I think that there's certainly that part of it that you mentioned, you know, where you're afraid of missing something. Yeah. And so therefore you kind of overdo it. Um, you know, and I think that there's opportunity to have, you know, machine learning and things um, like that to look at all these different parameters that are, you can draw out of the electronic health record and say, you know what, the probability of you catching a PE with the CT scan is 0.01%. And it costs, you know, $4,000. Do you still want to order it? Right. Um, yeah. And I think we'll, at some point we'll probably move in a direction um, like that. You know, it's interesting, too, because I think sometimes we get caught in the story of medicine. And what I mean by that is I'm an anesthesiologist. I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist, so I primarily do do cardiac surgery. And um, sometimes I'm called to take a patient to the operating room and I'll go see the patient and meet the patient. And it's really clear to me that going to the operating room is perhaps not the best idea. Um, that this this patient may be at the end of facing the end of their life, and the probability of them um, dying in the in the operating room is is extremely high. And and they're they've they're elderly. They may have multiple comorbidities. That the chance of us having a successful outcome is very very small. Um, and maybe they've had a chronic diseases for some time. And um, I often am the person that will say, um, because I, I don't, I haven't met the pa- patient. So I'm looking at this from a very objective standpoint. I don't have this strong relationship with the patient. I, I haven't been at the patient's bedside for the last month. I haven't visited the patient with in the clinic for years and years and years. 
But I know that the actual humane thing is not to go to the operating room because I have an objective point of view. And when I bring this up and my concerns up, oftentimes, you know, the first thing is, well, you know, you know, she or he is a very nice person. They, they've, you know, I've, I know they're, I've been with them for this many time. And the, and the physician kind of tells me their story and I can get drawn into this story in the, in the relationship of it's really the physician telling me like, but Sasha, you know, I've known this person for this long, or maybe it's the cardiologist or maybe it's their hospitalist or whoever. And, and while all that may be true, the, uh, the, the truth of the matter is that us going to the operating room is actually probably less humane than not going to the operating room. And it's probably more ethical to not take the patient to the operating room. Um, and it's hard to have those conversations with our colleagues, right? Um, it's and, and sometimes we end up going and sometimes we end up not going. And, and, but I think it's really interesting because sometimes I think we often need an outside perspective because medicine is not just a bunch of a checklist and it's not a recipe. Um, there's human emotion involved. There's relationships involved. It's, it's like science and art combined. And even though that's really cliche to say it's the truth (laughs) because that's why it's so hard on us, right? Like when we lose a patient, it's because they meant something to us or we, we identified or one of their family members we identified with, or we felt the empathy and the, and the suffering or the grief in that moment. And we should. And so I think that's why it's so, I mean, don't you find as a surgeon that that's what the most difficult part of our job can be at times? It's so true. I think the emotional side, um, you know, one of the, I had um, mentioned before, um, you know, we, have this conference that's coming up, but one of the things that um, we're planning is kind of going through, I think as a junior faculty, people don't teach you how to deal with your own complications and deal with the emotions of that or deal with the emotions of how do you say no to someone who, you know, they think the only chance that they have is surgery and maybe that's in a way true, but sometimes it's not even a chance. I mean, the more predicted mortality is 100% and, um, you know, they're not going to make it. And so the question is, would you, would you, how do you want to die? Not, and that's really hard uh, conversation, I think, to have with people. Um, when I, my grant that I have actually from the NIH, the title is The Role of, or the Impact of Emotions on Treatment Decision Making for Low Risk Thyroid Cancer. And I remember when I sent it in, I was like, I don't think the NIH is going to find emotions. <laughs> I love that. I love it. There's, I don't, I'm like, this is too touchy feeling. But the problem is, is when, you, when I started writing how affect affects something, the whole grant just sounded so funny because it was really about the role of affect um, and not emotions. But it just like it read really oddly because you would have the, the you know the A version of the word and the E version of the word right next to each other a lot. Um, and people were like, it was the cognitive burden of just trying to figure out what I was trying to say. And just switching it to the word emotion, because we all know them and know the word and we all have emotion, made it really easy to read, I think, and relatable. Um, but I remember just thinking, you know, you know, and I think we all have imposter syndrome. I was like, no, he's never going to fund this. Yeah, right. Yes, and I will... It'll be another, you know, life transition. I'll find. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think people. I don't think the public, and 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 many times those in medicine don't understand that getting an NIH, getting or securing NIH funding is is 
like going to the Olympics. I mean, it is so difficult and it is so, um, it takes such persistence and it takes so much rejection and training to get an NIH grant that I'll never forget what someone said to me. Um, what the, when I received an NIH grant, they were a cardiac anesthesiologist, a good friend of mine, Andy Shaw. And he said to me, um, you know, Dr. Shilkat, no one will ever be able to take that away from you. You're, you're in like this, you, it's like saying you went to the Olympics, like you can be 80 years old sitting in the nursing home and someone, and, and you can say like, I went to the Olympics and like no one, despite everything else you've done in your life, no one can, any other failure, no one can take that away from you. And I remember like, it changed my thought around people that have NIH funding. Cause I was like, you know, it's so true. It takes so much time and effort to get it. And so kudos to you because not only um, do you have NIH funding, but you're a clinical uh, surgeon who, a clinical researcher who does surgery. And on top of that, um, you're a woman. And, and quite frankly, you are kind of a unicorn <laughs> to be those three things. Um, and so I want to break down though, this word emotion, because I think being emotional or being told that you're emotional has this extremely negative content for context for women in the workplace. Um, I've been told that multiple times. Like I've even been warned that going into a meeting, like whatever you do, don't get emotional, you know? And Mm -hmm. I really hate, I was told when I was, Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. When I was um, going to be an intern, you know, I asked one of our female surgeons, um, you know, give me your best piece of advice. She said, don't ever let them see you cry. If you have to cry, you go in the stairwell and you stay in there until you're done crying and nobody can tell you we're crying and then you be Yes. That was her number one piece of advice. Yeah. And I, I mean, I lived that for years. I, I have cried in, you know, a storage closet at the hospital. Um, and, um, like I, I can tell you that my self criticism, my internal voice has really always been, don't get emotional. Don't, you know, Sasha, you're so emotional. This is your biggest problem is you just get emotional. And I've kind of, shied away from that and gone the other direction now. And I'm just like, you know, I am an emotional person. Um, that means I'm not a robot and that's who I am. Like I embrace my emotions. Um, it's not that I go to work and cry every day. I, I don't do that, but, but I, I'm, I don't think there's anything wrong with having emotions. Now, now there is something to be said. I think it has more to do with ego and making um, uh, decisions from a place of ego. You know, people will label it if you're a man. Oh, well, he just made that decision from a place of ego. But if you're a woman, well, she just made that decision from a place of emotion. And I'm thinking, no, I think that there's actually more danger in when we as people, men and women, make decisions from a place of ego. I see a lot of men getting angry and making rash and snap decisions, just as I see women getting quote unquote emotional. And so for me, I've really peeled back the layers and I see that the danger is when both genders, we make decisions in the workplace or we take action from a place of ego. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. I think that, um, that's absolutely true. I think I've seen some of the same observations. Uh, it's been interesting to me because as I mentioned before, my father is a surgeon. And he, you know, grew up when general surgery was still pro-amidal. Um, it was very cutthroat, very few women. Um, and we often talk about, you know, how do you, when you think about women in medicine, or when you think about women as surgeons, you know, he had a good friend who 
told his daughter not to go into surgery if she also wanted to be a parent. <laughs> you know, and then I, my dad encouraged me, you know, um, to do whatever I wanted, you know, the step of the way. But one of the things he always says is something that it's much different now. People are more open and they talk about things. And I think women made that possible. They let, because we tend to be more in touch with the emotional side and we're okay talking about burnout or physician suicide or all these things that have always existed, um, you know, but we're willing to talk about them and call them out and say, this can't happen. Um, you know, he thinks that a lot of, um, you know, positive changes come from the differences between genders and, and having more women uh, in medicine. Yeah, that's interesting. And having diversity in medicine, like, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I often say like, you know, diversity is really in a, it, it not having, you know, diversity to me is efficiency because when you have different people in the room, you're probably going to get to the answer quickly, more quickly. You know, Mm -hmm. when you have different people, the right answer, I should say, you might get to an answer more quickly if you have all one kind of people in the room, but it may, it it has more likelihood of being the wrong answer. When you have different people in the room, um, any multidisciplinary committee or anything like that, you're probably going to get the best answer. You're going to get to that best answer. Um, and so I think it's really interesting because I hear a lot of times, you know, like that well, it's just easier to be with people that think like me, look like me and act like me. <laughs> and it is, but it, it is easier. But, yeah. It's more comfortable, but you're probably not going to get the best answer in that room. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. Or what do you think of that? I, I definitely agree. Cause I think the diversity of thought, and even if everybody in the room did look the same, if you have diversity of thought, at least that's, I think will drive things forward and we will be able to have, you know, come up with kind of the right answer or, you know, multiple possibilities. It's when everybody's thinking is the same, that it really gets, I think, you get a very narrow view of whatever, you know, problem you're trying to solve. Um, and you're not likely not to come up with a, you know, a myriad of potential answers and then figure out which one's the best. So, um, and then I think diversity of, Every sort is important, um, but I really think when you're trying to come up with those solutions and different things, it's really you know how people are thinking about the problem and where they're coming from and their different backgrounds and all of that. And ultimately, a lot of that then drives, you know, uh, gender and racial and other types of diversity. They can go end up going hand in hand with that diversity of thought, you know. Um, but, but if you have just a whole bunch of people who all have similar backgrounds, you're not going to get there. Exactly, and so. Okay. I want to talk about the New York, um, the New Yorker or our cover challenge. Like you got to talk to me about how this and describe what this is for our listeners that have, have, you know, maybe have been living under a rock and don't know what this is, but most likely I guarantee you, most people have seen this image. And when you think of women surgeons, this is the image that comes to your mind. Yeah. So, um, the New Yorker, uh, it was April 4th, I think, or April 3rd, um, uh, four years ago when the cover came out, was it two years ago now? Um, it's only three years, I think. Um, Malika Favre is the artist. She's a French artist who um, at the time was living in London, made a cover, um, and it was for their every year the New Yorker puts out a healthcare issue. And she has done several New Yorker covers. Um, and she, you know, decided to 
put what was her image of her going to sleep when she was five years old. She had surgery. And she happened to have a woman, a female surgeon and a female anesthesiologist. And so it's actually a picture of, you know, a surgeon and, and an anesthesiologist and the two nurses. You know, but I think because I latched onto this and I was like, oh my gosh, it's an all female surgical team. You know, people really think of it as um, all female, you know, surgeons, but no, no team has four surgeons on it. Well, probably not entirely true, but, you know, uh, it's unlikely. And so it's just to me, the image, I love things that are graphic. So the eyes of these women are so beautiful and the OR lights behind them and it's turquoise and navy and black and white and just the graphic that just caught my attention. I think I was like literally just thumbing through Facebook when I saw it the first time and I was like, oh my God, I love that. You know, I just loved it as a piece of art, but I loved it for what it symbolized in terms of the being, um, you know, an all-female team um, uh, going to take care of whatever patient they're looking down at. And so I immediately was like, oh, I have to you know, replicate this. Um, and from the time the cover came out to the time it went viral, almost two weeks went by. And I've been asked several times, you know, why do you think it was delayed? Why didn't it go viral right away? I'm like, because you don't actually get an all-female surgical team in your OR every day. So, yeah, I don't have to get a bunch of people together in their free time. It doesn't super exist. Um, or you just have to wait till it happens and then take your picture and kind of post it. Um, and so um, there was actually a group from uh, UC Irvine that posted their picture um, on Tantsuit Nation, which was the like Facebook group that was a Hillary Clinton supporter. And it, it um, crashed my Facebook. I think it got like 70,000 likes on a Saturday afternoon um, in April that year. Wow. And that's when I really realized it would go viral. I was like, wow. wow. 70,000 yeah. likes. <laughs> so it literally crashed yep. your Facebook when you did this. Oh yeah. And my phone would, I would try to pull it up again and my phone would crash. <laughs> and, <yep. laughs> I love that. I don't do social media on the computer. I only do it on my phone and it limits it to this one little spot. You know, so one of the reasons why I think um, the cover challenge went viral is because, um, you know, I had been at several different institutions. I'd grown up on the East Coast and then did my training, a bunch of different programs in the Midwest and had transferred during residencies and I did two fellowships. And so I think because of that, I had a lot of different people that I could tap uh, into and ask and say, hey, you know, I did this. You got to, you know, take a picture and post one, too. Um, and I mean, I think people were just so excited about it and they got so creative. Um, you know, I think the initial pictures were very much focused on um just, you know, kind of replicating as much as you could the original, but then people started putting on, you know, let's put every different, you know, color hat we could put on, you know, and show, you know, all these fun different, you know, pieces of diversity. And then the best part, the pictures started coming out and a lot of the pictures, you know, were people's male colleagues laying on the floor taking the pictures of them, <laughs> which I just loved. So like, you know, University of Michigan, um, you know, they actually took, I think, one of their conference times to um, get a professional photographer in and take a bunch of pictures. And they have a picture of their chairman laying on the ground, taking pictures of the residents. I love that. Um, so how did it change? Yeah. Like, how did, how did your career or your, 
you know, how did your career change after this? I mean, this, like very few people have a picture that they put on Facebook that gets 70,000 likes in a day and goes viral. Like, but how does that, how did that influence your career as an academic surgeon? It's really interesting. I think, you know, you then become like this, uh, a name that people know, right? So people know these great people um, in surgery because they historically made some major um, advancement or they came up with a procedure that's named after them or an instrument or something like that, um, or they're a chairman and that kind of thing. But it made me, I think in many ways, my name at least very well known. And so the number of people who would come up to me at conferences after that and introduce themselves and say, Oh my God, are you Susie Pitt? Oh my God. You know, and and can I get a picture with you? Can we do a cover challenge together? Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just really interesting. Um, and, uh, my, you know, I, I've mentioned my dad a couple of times and he was a major sort of, you know, influence on me and, um, on my career. He was funny. He went to, um, sort of the biggest, oldest, um, meeting for surgeons is the American Surgical Association. And the women chairs were getting together there, taking pictures and doing things. And he said, I know I finally made it because I think more people know who you are now than they know who I am. <laughs> And he just loved it. And proud dad moment. And like proud. And he was like, it's so great. You know, I mean, so I think, and then it's sort of one of these things is if somehow just because someone knows your name or knows who you are, something about you, then they listen to other things that you have to say. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's opened doors in terms of, you know, all sorts of things, not just things related to women in medicine, but also research. And, you know, just because I think it's that familiarity that people have. Oh, yeah, I know who that is. Right. You know, sure, we could invite her to do something. Um, And I think that's what makes a difference. I mean, I think that that's what makes a huge difference of social media in general is if you're someone who's out there, you know, whether you're tweeting a lot or on Instagram or whatever, you're doing a lot, you sort of get to kind of know people and their personalities just by what by what they post and what their sort of beliefs are or their platform or, you know, different things, whether or not they're branding themselves or, and you can really kind of sell that and sell yourself. And I think it puts people who are otherwise, you know, maybe, you know, never going to have opportunities open, or maybe it would take them 10 years to get doors to open. You know, I think they open a lot sooner um, and and it allows that sort of visibility and kind of levels the playing field. That's one of the things I just love about social media is because it doesn't really matter who you are. You can get up there and tweet whatever you want. That's very true. Um, That's very true. Um, yeah, I mean, you can tweet at the president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yes, you can. <laughs> um, okay. So I am really excited because in three weeks, you and I are going to meet in Arizona and we are putting on the Brave Enough Conference uh, for Women in Medicine. And we are really excited because you're one of our panelists and you're going to be doing some teaching and some breakout sessions on social media. But you also are in a, a very phenomenal, um, session that we're ending the conference on, on thought distortions and reframing your story. And, um, 
I, I, I'm just, I have to throw that out there. I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to give it away before it happens <laughs> for those that are listening and coming to the conference. But this is probably going to air after um, the, the conference. And so I just, you know, can you share a little bit about like, through because of social media, basically you and I have have formed an alliance and a friendship. And I've asked, I was, I, I asked you to speak at the conference about you know not surgery, um, not uh, you are talking about social media and how to advance your career. But I'm also asking you to talk about something you've probably never asked to talk <laughs> on a stage about, which is in typical Sasha fashion. Um, you know, the Brave Enough Conference is, is a little different than other um, CME conferences is in that it, we really go internal and we get real, uh, really fast. So can you share a little bit about what you're going to, or the purpose of the panel, and you don't have to talk in detail, but just kind of what I've asked you to be a part of. Yeah, um, you know, you've asked me to be part of this, um, you know, panel on rewriting your life, um, or you know, you 2.0. Um, and I think for me, I happen to have particular experience slash experiences because they kind of coincided. Um, you know, I realized I my first fellowship was in transplant and um, abdominal uh, organ transplantation and hepatobiliary surgery. And I realized partway through that it just wasn't what I wanted to do. But I didn't know if I was so unhappy because I was so unhappy in my marriage or if I just didn't like my life because I literally was you know, in the hospital the vast majority of the time or flying somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, to get an organ and that kind of thing. And I was married at the time. I've been married for about five years. And my now ex-husband, you know, I had decided finally that I was going to, to quit. And I was, I had an appointment on Sunday morning to meet with my boss because why not meet on Sunday morning? (laughs) That's the only time that searches are free, right? Oh my goodness. Um, Yes. And, and so I came, you know, so I went home, I went out literally on Saturday night with some friends and I came home and he had packed everything up and he said, I just, I don't want you to leave Translate for me because I don't want to be with you anymore. Mm. And I think I, I literally just thought I had lost everything. And and through the course of going through getting divorced and changing my specialty and needing a job all of a sudden, all of this at once, I mean, I think I, that was probably the lowest low what followed that, um, of my life. But what it made me realize is that I think every moment up until then, I was always being who somebody else wanted me to be. I was trying to be, you know, the wife he wanted to be and the, the chief resident they wanted to be me to be. And I was the administrative chief after transferring into a program, Mm. um, you know, and people didn't even know me that well. And, you know, I was trying to be the surgeon my dad wanted me to be in this. And I suddenly just realized I had no idea who I really was and what I cared about, what I wanted or what I valued. And I just felt, you know, so lost. Mm. Um, and I did a lot of work over the next you know, year and then continuing work just all the time to kind of figure that out and be true to myself and just be me. Um, But I didn't even know who that was. Um, Mm. And so, you know, um, I think that, um, you know, getting back to the, what we talked a little bit about earlier in terms of women and emotions and and things like that, I was telling someone that I'm going to be talking about this and telling my story on a stage. And they were like, I wish men could do this. <laughs> this is a man saying it. Oh, <laughs> this wow. is this is this is this is a this is a male like surgeon saying this and he goes, 
you know, you know, men just can't get up on the stage and be that vulnerable and share. And he was saying to me, you know, I just cannot imagine how many people you will help by just sharing mm-hmm. that vulnerability mm-hmm. and the story, whether or not they're getting divorced or changed to specialty. It may be some other, you know, big event in their life that they can, there's some part of it that they can identify, you know, with your story and then you telling them kind of how you got through it, what you did, like, you know, that's just so kind of profound. So I thank you for the opportunity to just, you know, share, um, yeah, uh, I know, I know yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's funny because when I, put together the Brave Enough Conference the first year, I, it's an enormous amount of work and you are putting together a, a, a women in surgery conference, which is amazing. Um, and I want you to tell us a little bit about that, um, as we end here. But when I was putting together the Brave Enough Conference, the first time I thought, you know, why am I doing this? There's, there's a lot of great conferences for women in medicine and what do I really have to add that's different? And I mean, this is going to be an enormous amount of, of work for me. And I, I was, really going back and forth. I struggled for about a year to decide whether I wanted to do it or not. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have set a precedent where every speaker has to tell us a little bit about their story. Because for me, that's how I, I learn. I learn when I can connect with someone and when someone becomes vulnerable to me, um, it, it makes, in my mind, they level up. Like I automatically, um, connect with them more. And I, I connect with what they're trying to teach me more. So for me, that was one of the things, but it's really hard to get up on a stage and it's hard to find, um, a safe place where you as a leader and you as a researcher and you as this, you know, leading voice in surgery and all these things can, share vulnerability. And that's one of the reasons we don't tape the conference. I don't let anyone record the conference because of that, because I want that to be a safe space in medicine for us to do that. So talk to us, like, where can people follow you? What's your Twitter handle? And then tell us a little bit about the women in surgery conference that you're doing in May of 2020. Absolutely. So, um, I can, I am on Twitter and Instagram as at Susie QP eight. So it's S U S I E. And then the uh, Q's like Susie Q and then P is my last first letter, my last name and eight was my number in college. I played um, uh, lacrosse um, at Boston College. And so that's been my lucky number. Um, And, you know, I'm on uh, Facebook as well, um, just with uh, as Susie Pitt. And, um, you know, the conference that we're planning, you know, I have a great group of um, faculty here and we've gone at least um, tried to go across just in terms of surgery, because it's going to be partially um, uh, funded by COVIDian. Um, and they have a great program that they've done for years, and they will support different women in surgery events. Um, and they've done the this event in the past about five years ago uh, here um, at UW. And we're actually going to partner with the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee so that it's uh, much more uh, kind of regional. Um, and we're going to really kind of focus on, um, you know, personal and professional growth. So there's going to be part of it that's, you know, a lot of the typical, you know, here's communicating with your team, here's how to be confident, um, you know, in the OR and in meetings and, you know, teaching people just different, um, strategies for, you know, being heard for amplifying each other and those kinds of things. And that part of it's going to be about, you know, self-care 
And I know that's something you're really passionate about. Um, mm-hmm. We have a, hopefully we have a physical therapist that's going to come and teach us about ergonomics and things, you know, because as surgeons, we like are hunched over all the time. Yeah, you that's know? awesome. <laughs> that's you know? really smart. Um, and exercises to do to help keep our shoulders open so that we're not getting hunched back and, you know, things for your neck and things like that. And so I'm really excited about it. Um, you know, I'm one of these people, I, um, I've always liked to say, I don't like being the leader. I like being the cheerleader. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that so I don't perfectly love- describes you. <laughs> but I don't love the planning part and the that part and the like running the meetings, but I love being number two in charge or like three and supporting everything and making sure it happens and, and, and being that sort of one on the ground doing stuff as opposed to sort of like the overview. So it's a little bit of an uncomfortable position for me because I realized this over time. I'm like, I don't know that I really want to necessarily be, you know, in this type of position or that type of position because it's not like, it's not my best qualities. Like I'm best at doing this part, you know, and I've, you know, I've often been captain of the team, but you always have a co-captain and I've been the quiet captain who kind of leads by example and, and, and then is kind of really loud and gets people going for game day, but then, but not the one who like organizes all the other things. Cause that's not, you know, really my forte. And certainly I can learn how to do that, but, um, but what that's, that's such good self insight, you know, that's so smart that you know that, because I think, don't you think so many times as women, we do things because someone else asks us to, or they, we feel pressured to, or we feel like, oh my gosh, I got asked to do this. This is amazing. But it's not really in our forte of skills or, or maybe we can, we know we can do it, but it's not what like really drives us. And we find ourselves then succeeding at something that we actually don't like. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, I think for me in the last, like, you know, cause I'm going into my fifth year on faculty, just editing what I do so that mm-hmm. what I'm doing is what I want to be doing. And what I love doing was really hard to figure out. Right. Cause in the beginning you just want to say yes to every opportunity. Um, and I still have trouble saying no at times, but I just find that like, running around and trying to make everybody else happy will never make me happy. Um, And so, you know, if I can at least put the majority of my time into, you know, this thing and that thing, you know, then I can tolerate doing a few of these other things I don't really love doing. Um, But if I don't have that without that major energy going into places that I really, really care about, then I, that's where I feel like I start getting burnout because I'm doing all these things that I'm, aren't as meaningful to me. I agree. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know how busy you are as a surgeon and a researcher and a leader. And I just really thank you for your friendship. And also I really thank you for your vulnerability and your honesty to share today with, um, how there were pauses and pivots in your life and how it's a continuum and that growth is something that we all strive for, but it looks different for every person. So if you're listening today, I hope that we offered you some hope and some inspiration and And I also hope that you will join us at a future conference um, that either myself or Dr. Pitt is putting on. We would love to connect with you. And as always, live brave. This has been an HSG production.